You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go teabag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Angler's has you covered. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. That's Angler's, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Pat? Good. How are you, Dave? Appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Thank you uh, for coming on and getting a little side, uh, some time here to dig into. I think the focus today is going to be largemouth bass, which is awesome because um, I haven't done a lot of it. I've done a little bit of it. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are passionate about it, but you got a lot more going on than on top of largemouth, uh, smallmouth. You've got a fly shop and we're going to dig into all that today. But before we start there, let's bring us back. We always like to start with fly fishing. How did you first get into it? What was your first memory of fly fishing? Um, it was pretty good, and that's a pretty easy question to answer. I was just a, a young kid, and I was watching the first, I believe it was the first American Sportsman show on ABC with Kurt Gowdy and with Jack Dennis, and they were floating the Snake River, and I grew up fishing. I mean, you live in Wisconsin. My dad was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so every weekend as a kid, I was up there traipsing around in the woods and fishing and stuff and uh i didn't know what fly fishing was and i was watching watching them fish out of that drift boat i just i don't know what they're doing it looks pretty cool i gotta figure that out and my dad would always take me fishing but he just had no use for going in the woods up there with with trout fishing so i was kind of left to my own devices and a lot of trips to the library before there was an internet got it all figured out and and that's kind of what led me there one of the cool things about it was eventually i met jack dennison became a mentor mm. of mine and uh, got me some gigs at some of the national fly fishing shows doing seminars and stuff and became a really good friend of mine <laughs> and uh it was kind of a full circle deal so jack's kind of a special guy to me and uh that's what got me rolling wow that's pretty good. That's a good mentor to have. We've, uh, I'm just kind of looking up, uh, Jack Dennis. Yeah. Episode 217, we had Jack on and it was one of my favorite episodes because he obviously has all this history and, uh, he was so influential to many people. Right. And, and I think, you know, he's still going strong out there. So this is cool. Um, and remind us again, now, where are you coming from now? Uh, where's your shop and what part of the world are you in? 
I'm in Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is one of the western suburbs of Milwaukee. So I was born and grew up here and uh, started the shop in 1988. So this is, it'll be 36 years in January that I've had the shop. There you go, 1988. That's amazing. And so Jack, and you mentioned Kurt Gowdy. That's one person we had Jack on. I, I don't think Kurt is around anymore, but do you remember, what can you say about Kurt? Did you know much about him? I, I didn't. I mean, he was just, he was a guy that, uh, you know, big sports announcer with all the football games. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And extremely iconic. Yeah. And I was at a Milwaukee Braves game before the Brewers, um, years ago and i think he was one of the announcers and after the game we just kind of hung over the railing and yelled down to him and he waved up hi kids kind of a cool deal back when yeah it was a big deal to get on tv and and uh it was kind of fun i mean i had nothing to do with with what we're talking about but it was just that six degrees of separation as they say um and then a, a good friend of mine, I grew up four doors from, he ended up on that show as a technical advisor with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were looking for grizzly bears in Yellowstone Park um, with a guy by the name of Doug Peacock, who was a bear expert. And huh. My friend Dave, he was there, but by that time, Kurt Gowdy was gone and, and the show was gone in so many different directions. They weren't hunting on it anymore, and they were very infrequently fishing. So it had changed. So I didn't never got to really hear what the story was with Kurt Gowdy. But gotcha. Good part for me was I got to know all about Jack. Yeah, Jack, that's awesome. Yeah, and Curtis, I I can't remember. Yeah, I do remember that was yeah 2006. I guess he passed away. Um, but yeah, he was Boston Red Sox and uh, and a sportscaster. Amazing. All right. Well, we're gonna. I always love touching on sports because that's one of my interests. But let's keep it on the fly fishing here. Um, so you get started with the fly ship. Let's hear about, I want to hear about the fly shop. So when did you, the fly fishers, um, you know, when did that come to be? When did you know you were going to have a fly shop and were you in the industry doing things before that? Well, well I mean, when I was a, a kid and I was trying to get it all figured out and I'd sit in a house and tie flies. I mean, I know I suck on a guitar now and that's because I was spending my time time flies instead of learning how to play the guitar when i was a kid yep and uh but i guess it worked out all right right um but i just always kind of wanted to and i remember then i got into high school and always had a bunch of books with me there and kids were teasing me oh are you gonna do fish for a living <laughs> and i ended up doing it amazing um yeah and, and here in town we had these they weren't really fly shops they were places that had some fly fishing stuff and i remember i mean talk about dating me dan bailey getting those catalogs eric Leiser out on the, the east coast and stuff and a lot of people listen to this might not even know who those people are but very historical figures in the, the retail end of fly fishing and that and i just saw a need for it and i was tying flies and doing seminars at local conclaves and fishing fly fishing shows and Got to talking to one of the reps one day and, you know, how hard is it to do this? And I hated what I was doing before. So took a stab at it and one thing led to another and people in the business were kind of laughing at me. How are you going to do that in Wisconsin in the land of walleyes <laughs> and, and night crawlers and right. stuff? And I guess I was just too stubborn to, uh, to give up on it and got over the hump and 
now here I am going on 36 years later. Yeah, that is so cool. So you, you did it basically. And nowadays, right, all these species, musky, you know, like you name it, it's pretty much all game on the fly. Um, what, what does that look like in, you know, since you've been in it for this the long haul here, you know, the evolution of, you know, where you started and now where it seems like everybody's just fishing for everything. Has it been kind of interesting to see that evolution? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy because, you know, I look at some of my equipment and rods to me, you know, that stuff, it just kind of keeps changing and evolving. And, and you look back at some of the old rods you've got and you go, yeah, these are pretty nice, but it's nothing like what you're fishing with now. But then you look at the fly reels and you go, man, I've got some old Billy Pates and some old Abels, and they're as good as the day I bought them for myself 30 plus years ago. Yeah. And back then I always thought, you know, if I'm going to sell expensive stuff like this, I need to use it. And I started finding ways of going saltwater fishing and bone fishing and tarpon fishing. So that when people said, well, what's the best tarpon reel to use or bonefish, I didn't have to tell them, well, guys tell me this, right. this is what I use. And it kind of led to the genesis of my saltwater fishing. And then I ran into a guy, met him through Flip Pallet, who was another guy I was lucky enough to meet. And he was a big influence on me through the years getting started, but introduced me to a fellow named Rick Murphy. And Rick's on uh, national TV now. He really hmm. developed into something. He's got uh, Sportsman's Adventures, and he does a live fishing report show. He's down in Florida. And I learned an awful lot about saltwater fishing with Rick. I would get down there and fish with him four or five times a year and stay at his house. And we just kind of became like brothers. And And I really learned a lot about saltwater fishing and started hosting trips. And we still do a lot of trip hosting and stuff nowadays for saltwater and, and other stuff as well. But and what I'm getting at is for our shop, I mean, where we live here in Wisconsin, if we had mountains, you couldn't keep people away. Um, cause we've got over 15,000 lakes. We've got 9,000 miles of trout streams. Right. And I don't know if you live anywhere in the state, if you're not within 15 miles of some kind of large mouth water and panfish everywhere and ponds and that. So when you come into our shop, we've got to have flies for warm water. We've got to have flies for trout, cold water. We've got salmon, steelhead running in lake michigan lake superior and we're a big saltwater shop even though we're stuck right in the middle of the country so we've probably got 200 saltwater patterns in there so the shop kind of covers it all and, and i've watched it kind of take off and and a good friend of mine his dad was a fly fishing guy and he came in here a couple of years ago with a stack of old fly fisherman magazines and dropped them off so you know, I had these, I thought you might appreciate them. And I look back at that stuff and I just go, wow, you know, just companies you completely forgot about oh, yeah. that were business and you grew up in the sport buying their stuff and talking about it. And it's just, it's kind of crazy. Like what would be, so companies that were big back in the day and now they're gone? Oh, you know, like waiters. Oh. And I'm sure they're still around, but Hodgson waiters. Oh, Hodgman, yeah. Was, or Hodgman, everybody was wearing those back in the day. Yep. And then all of a sudden this company pops up out of Jackson called Sims, I think it is. Right. 
you know, and the rest is history there. Um, and I can remember another one waiter wise. They were like latex waiters, super lightweight. Oh, yeah. Red balls. No, nope. no, not red balls. No, yeah, it was something else. I can't remember. But boy, if you put a pair of those on, you would just be 20 pounds lighter at the end of the day. Oh, oh, these were the like full on, almost like rubber type things or whatever. They yeah. Like big body condom almost. Right. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. And then fly lines, they've changed so much. Yeah. And, and uh, the reels, you know, Fluger Medalists. I remember buying my first one when I was a teenager going, oh my God, this is like the Cadillac fly reels. Yeah. And I've still got that thing. Um, and even those have changed. I mean, the company's been sold so many times and they're built offshore rods, you know, from fiberglass to graphite blends to graphite. So it's hard to pin it all down, but it's pretty crazy. Quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's subscription fly box. Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly time materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. So the gear, do you think that's the reason, like when you look at the the evolution of you know I, i'm not sure let's say go back to 88 right when you think of what people were fishing for in 88 versus now do you think is it mainly the gear do you think that allowed people to now they're chasing like you name the species right out there all these salt everything um well yeah you know and i was too young for these guys but like the joe brooks and stuff but i still read their books and you look back at him and guys like Lee Wolf, and of course, then there was Lefty. These guys were all fishing saltwater. And you read the books now, and bamboo rods and flood, uh, metalist reels, flugers. Right. For saltwater stuff. Crazy. And yeah. And then it all started evolving with the, the equipment once fly fishing caught on more. That's right. Nice, nice. Well, we'll probably uh, keep on, you know, and with the shop. And I know you've got some stuff with rainies and flies, and we'll dig into a little bit of all this as we go. But um, but let's jump in. I think largemouth bass is a species that is definitely, um, you know, on a lot of people's lists. I think smallmouth probably gets a lot of more, maybe more airplay out there. But I want to talk about largemouth. So, um, but before we get there, just let's bring it back to the shop again. So somebody comes into the shop, you know, um, throughout the year, and they say, "Hey, I'm here. <laughs> you know, I'm in Milwaukee." Wisconsin or wherever, you know, I want to go fishing. What do you tell them? Like, what's your first step there? Is it largemouth? Is that on top of the list or is there other species? No, we got everything. The closest stuff to us, uh, cold water wise, is steelhead and salmon. Although the rivers on our side of the lake are not cold water. Um, it works because it's cold out when those fish are running. And we get a couple of big rains and we'll start seeing fish here in the next week or so. Um, so we've got that into things and it draws a lot of people, but that's eh, a little bit too much of a carnival for me. You know, a lot of elbow to elbow stuff. Oh, right. And it's not the esoteric fly fishing rivers that you think of salmon and steelhead. Um, a lot of guys with gear pushing each other around down there. <laughs> but I mean, if you do it right, right times of the day, week, you can find some, 
some room and a lot of guys do fly fish down there but as far as the the warm water stuff goes we've got some of the best bass lakes within 20 minutes of the shop just west of town and uh i got a bass boat i'm hooked up with vexus boats and i'm part of mercury's pro team Mm. and uh i'll go out and fish for a few hours in the morning and i can be back at the dock and within a half hour have my boat on the trailer and be back in the parking lot of the store to open up the shop in the morning so and it's like pewaukee is one of the best bass lakes in the state and we've got a lot of them around there i could name five or six other lakes within five ten minutes of that one so we've got tons of that but the problem in fly fishing becomes what kind of boat do you have Mm. and we've got some great smallmouth rivers the milwaukee river runs up north out of town it gets a run of uh the anadromous fish but then all summer long it's full of smallmouth and pike and there's even a few muskies in it in the northern reaches of it um down to the southwest of town we got the fox river that's full of smallmouth so there are places you can wade but the issue becomes and keep in mind there's a million and a half people around here these are developed lakes so you can't just wade around the edges um with all rocks and everything you got to have some kind of a craft to go out and fish in them and float tubes and that there's a few small lakes you can do that or canoes but you get killed in some of these lakes come middle of the morning with water skiers and jet skiers and stuff <laughs> but if you got a regular fishing boat there's tons of opportunities so it's kind of what do you want to fish for as far as the trout goes we do have a few streams within a half hour of the shop but by june they're so grown over their little spring creeks and the watercrafts and yellow dia, it almost makes them impossible to fish so guy needs to drive about an hour and a half get out of town get over to the the eastern reaches of the driftless area to fish for trout but it's an easy day trip so we get a lot of that okay yeah perfect yeah so it's what do you want to do what do you want to do yeah because you're right on it's cool because you guys are pretty much right on the banks of lake michigan right you're just kind of how far are you from what's the drive down to chicago from your shop um to get downtown i would guess an hour and a half when i'm flying out of town here i live in the southern end of milwaukee county and uh when i'm flying out of town 90 percent of the time i fly i drive down to o'hare because it's just an hour and 10 minutes from my house and i can get a lot of direct flights so we're not that far away and in fact we've got a ton of customers in illinois because it's easier for them to drive up to us and go down south into the city to the shops down there that's it. So you're in a cool place because you're kind of out. It seems like, well, you're, you know, obviously you're right on, you're near the lakes. Like you said, the driftless isn't that far away. Um, so what about the largemouth? So if we're talking largemouth, somebody comes into the shop and they say, hey, man, I really want to go for largemouth. What's the first thing? What do you tell them? Well, again, you know, do you have a boat? Yes. Do you have to have a boat you need for largemouth bass? You definitely need a boat. Well, it's hard to access the lakes if you don't have a boat. You know, and fish are starting to move back into the shallows, but you need to have some way of getting at them. And yeah, you kind of need something. Now that could be a a kayak or it could be a canoe or something. Or a paddleboard. Is he ever seen paddleboards out there? Yeah, all the time. Okay. Um, More of the women doing it. Right. When I'm out fishing from the 
the ladies that live in the houses there. I have never seen anybody fishing out of one. Oh, you never have? Never seen anybody out there for largemouth on a paddle boat? Nope. It's all kayaks around here. Oh, it's all kayaks. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Nice. So. You just carry more gear. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. But, uh, you know, it's simple to get somebody on largemouth water around here. It's just so much of it. Gotcha. So what would be the first? So let's say they come in there, they've got a boat. Well, first, what is the boat? You know, is there, there's probably lots of boats we talked here. What would be the, what's the boat you use? And what do you think is the perfect boat for that part of the, for largemouth, for that part of the world? I've got a 21 foot Vexus. <laughs> yeah. Big bass boat. Boat, and that's the perfect boat for me. Oh, you got a bass boat, right? You have a bass yeah, boat. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just such a fishing machine, but I know that's a, everybody's not going to have one. Everybody can't even get them into their garage, but being in the business, it's just most awesome fishing tool you can have. But the other end of the spectrum, I've also got a 16 foot John boat with a 40 horse tiller. And I don't think you can get a more versatile boat because I use that thing on the Wisconsin river and and some of the other rivers up in northern Wisconsin, and if you bang it off the rocks, you don't care. And it's still big enough that you can put that thing onto the bigger lakes around here. Oh, you can. So you can run it. Absolutely. Gotcha. And do you ever see other boats? I mean, you probably see all sorts of stuff. Like, um, I guess drift boats probably aren't that popular out there. Um, there's tons of drift boats in Wisconsin, but they're all on the rivers. We've got so many rivers for warm water stuff. Um, the problem with drift boats in the lakes is you just can't control them. No, they they're not good. Yeah. They're spin around. Yeah. 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 They're not good. Well, this is cool. So you got the giant, awesome boat and then you got the, the John boat. So really anybody, yeah, whatever you have. So let's say we have a boat, we're going in there, we got a little John boat. And then what is the next step? We're getting set up for this large mouth. What are you, are you telling somebody, you know, as far as, you know, finding fish, is it easy? Is it hard? How do they start there? Yeah. Yeah. Finding fish, I mean, when I do seminars on that stuff, some of the things that you need to to remember, and keep in mind, I've got good electronics. I'm, I'm with Nakoda and Humminbird as well, yep. and uh, that makes life a whole lot easier. But at the least, you get yourself a good lake map, and you can you don't need all that stuff to go catch fish. And in fact, yeah, a little bit of that stuff. They're starting to get a lot of pushback with some of these units on it's becoming more of a video game. Oh, right. Like it's so, is it getting to a point where it's just super easy to find fish? Like, can you track this down now to be like, that is the bass, the largemouth I want to catch? Uh, I mean, with the live stuff that these companies are putting out, you can target them with your bait. It's hard to do with a fly, but like oh. with jigs and stuff, you can see your bait go down to them. And it's getting very cartoonish. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. And there's a bunch of the tournament pros that are starting to say, hey, enough's enough. Too much. Like this isn't even. It's is it... taking the the fun out of finding fish and catching them, you know. The, right. Because yeah, it used to always be, hey, I got this figured out. And I'm still that way in my mind. And back in the days, just had the lake maps and stuff. And, you know, find yourself some rock bars, some weed beds. You got weeds, you're going to have largemouth around there. And there's always going to be some shallow, and depending on the size, time of the year, there's going to be some out deep. 
And I think one of the big failings that I see with fly fishermen that are trying to catch largemouth bass with a fly is it's just always a floating line and it's always topwater stuff. Mm. And I fish a lot of conventional gear and it's where my fly pattern designs come from. I'm trying to imitate what the gear guys are using because they're good at it. And a lot of my patterns reflect that stuff. And you got to get down in the weeds and dig the fish out a lot of times. Once summer comes, you know, May and June, it's easy to fish the edges and have success. And you can still do that all summer, but it's more of an early in the morning, late in the daytime uh, game when the fish are really a lot of times looking up in the shallow water. But if you want to catch fish all day, you may have to go dig them out. And that means sinking lines, and, and we have the ability to do that, but it's going to take a little bit of work and homework to figure out how to do that. And I work with scientific anglers as one of their ambassadors, and it's one of the reasons they brought me on board is because of this warm water stuff that I do, and I'm constantly working on things. How can we figure out how to do that easier? You know, I've got ideas all the time that I'm playing with stuff, cutting up lines and doing things mm-hmm. and messing around with that stuff. But I mean, you can go in and, and I tell people at least buy a sink tip line. Yeah. We just came out with a line that, uh, we've got now it's a five foot mini sink tip. And it's one of the things when I signed on with them that I brought up, and uh, they had messed around with that. And back in the days when I was with another line company, I had that idea for a five-foot sink tip. And, and we came out with it. And it was extremely popular. And uh, SA brought it out. And I'm really excited about that because I like using them trout fishing. Because, if you, you know, if you got a 10, 15-foot sink tip fishing streamers, and you're not in the right kind of river for that, you got line laying on the bottom while you're and with this and smaller streams where you want to get down a little bit fishing streamers in the fall or something works perfect and i've got some stuff i play around with with deer hair flies and divers fishing the surface with a sink tip line and a long leader in fact we just did a a video on that here a week or two ago that i think sa put out you can find that on their i believe on their website um just talking about how to rig your stuff up for that. And so there's a lot of different things you can do with it, but it's just, and I'll hear it when I'm out in my boat, I'll be out 10, 15 feet of water and you know how voices carry across the water. And I'll hear some guys talking half a mile away. Hey, look at that knucklehead. He's out there fishing poppers with a fly rod (laughs) and they don't have any clue. I'm fishing eight, 10 feet down with it. And, uh, Hey, just, you really need more than a floating line. And that's one of the biggest keys when I talk to people in the store about having success with, with bats in still water situations and even in moving water rivers and streams. Yeah, that's a huge tip. So in that line for SA, it reminds me again, what's the name of that line? If somebody wanted to grab that one, is that out now? Yes. Um, it's on the website and don't shoot me an essay, don't shoot me, but I can't remember exactly how they named it. Oh yeah. If they called it the mini tip, but it's, it's a new short head five footer. Okay. Yeah. I'll hit up Joe. I know we've been chatting about stuff. I'll, I'll make sure we'll get that 
Yeah, don't tell them I couldn't remember. I won't. I was the guy working <laughs> with it. But I don't know what exactly they called. I was thinking about Phil Roy because he's kind of one of our, uh, you know, he works on a lot of our Stillwater stuff, you know, more focused on trout. But I asked him the other day, he was try- on air, you know, he was kind of like, okay, what's the name of your new book? And he couldn't remember his new book, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's okay. We all have the, you know what I mean? But um, yep. and there's so much gear too. That's the thing, like all this gear is out there, you know, it's hard to keep track of all of it. But but what you're saying is sinking line and definitely don't have, well, have this mini type of sink tip, but also, is it good to also have those longer um, 10, 15 foot sink tips? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And full sinking lines as well. Like I love stuff like the SA, the I-35, where it's a triple density line or the 357s. In fact, those three five sevens, we're using those about ninety percent of the time for all of our musky fishing, even with topwater stuff and rivers, just because you know with the current it keeps the lines up in that. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So, and then for largemouth specifically, do you want to have a range of all these sink tips? Is that the case? I would. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to tell a guy go out and buy five fly right. lines to yeah. go fishing for the day, but I absolutely from full sink lines to floating lines and everything in between. Yeah. Gotcha. So if we were coming in today or, you know, during the, and I mean, I guess you mentioned, so now we're kind of in the middle end of the summer into the fall. Um, and so somebody's coming in there, the line you would give them, if they had one line, what would that be for largemouth? Well, or maybe two. <laughs> yeah. You know, you always want to have a floating line and you got to start there. There's no doubt about it. However, I would have at least a sink tip line of some sort. Um, not necessarily a full sink. That would be my third choice probably. Okay. But uh, definitely at least a sink tip. Yeah, perfect. And then, and as we're looking, you know, in your part of the world, so what is timing-wise? sounds like you fish throughout the year. The water temperatures change, fish change. But is there a time where you can't, um, you know, fish for largemouth or catch them there? Oh, yeah, it freezes up here. Yeah. When's that happen? Um, depending on where you live, because it can be a week earlier up in northern Wisconsin, but you can usually stay out in the water until November. Okay. And then once we hit December, it's pretty much going away. Yeah, you're pretty much frozen. And and then you come, and then ice out is typically, when is that? Is that kind of like uh, April? Um. Yeah, it's, well, and sometimes, I mean, the general opening day, the traditional opening day is the first Saturday in May. Mm. Um, the season is open, catch and release for bass year-round, which can be a moot point if the water's frozen. Well, you could ice fish for them, but um, we've had a couple of really cold winters where the ice is just going out, even down here in the south, first Saturday in May, but Generally, we can get out in April and, and start fishing, and sometimes as early as March. Okay, early as March. And and when you're getting out during that time, it sounds like maybe you're, you're fishing the edges. Is that kind of where the fish are more typically because the water is cooler? <laughs> the water isn't cooler. It's cold. Oh, I it's mean, cold. You be dealing with water temps in the 30s. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's where you got to know how to play the game because I went out back when uh, – they still do it. They have a fly-only tournament in uh, California out in the Delta for bass. And I went and did the first three of them when Sims was sponsoring that. And uh, 
I remember going out there and I fished with one of the local pros because I wasn't hauling my boat all the way out there. And this guy could not fly fish and it was a disaster. He ran the boat from the front and I had a fish out of the back. So he was positioning the boat for the front to be in the right spot. And it was okay. I had a great time with him. He was totally ignorant and totally <laughs> apologetic. And we had an awesome time. <laughs> um, but by the time we got done, he looked at me and he said, I have really got to learn to do this. He said, you are doing an ultra finesse game that I have to do here in California with six pound line. And you're using 16 pound leaders and still catching fish. He said, that tells me something. And it really opened up a light to me that, yeah, you know, we've got advantages because there's times when it's the worst way to fish for bass and you might as well just put the fly rod down, mm -hmm. pick up a bait casting rod or a spinning rod if you want to catch fish. But it really tells you that there's times and if you play the game right and cold water is finesse time, it's slow fishing and it's a good time to do that kind of stuff. So like hair leeches, those kind of patterns, articulated stuff that you can just kind of move in the current and just kind of aggravate the fish, piss them off to eat something. Play your cards right. And you can do okay. Typically when you're fishing cold water, and especially in the fall, you're not going out there to catch a limit of fish. Mm. You're going out there to catch one fish. But that one fish for us could be a five, six pound fish. Yeah. Because we don't get the growth rate 12 months a year. So we don't see the six, seven, eight pounders once in a while. You catch five, six pounder. You're looking for that one fish. And I'll tell you what, the only guys that you see in the water when it's like that are the serious guys anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have the finesse game. So when the water is colder, like you are really cold. You just got to slow things down. And what would be a, is that correct? And then also what would be a pattern? I know you have a bunch of great patterns through rainies. What would be a pattern you might use for that slow finesse game? My vampire leech. Um, it's an articulated leech and I use this stuff. It's uh, ultra suede for the tails and we're punching them out to a particular dimension shape. And there's a fella here in northern wisconsin an iconic musky guy by the name of joe booker and joe's been on tv forever he's a great guy one of my good friends used to be his cameraman he's had a tv show locally for about 30 years he had these things called booker tails and it was a plastic that you put on the back of a conventional bait for smallmouth and it was kind of an homage to him was the shape with the ultra suede and I used that in one of my first patterns using that, the Grim Reaper, which is basically my answer to a swim jig. One of the best all-around gear lures for bass fishing. And so I've incorporated that into some of my bonefish patterns in smaller sizes, and as well as this vampire leech. So there's some flash built into it. It's a palmered body on both hookends with it and with marabou and with some laser chenille on it and then lead eyes so you can just kind of undulate that thing from fish fish it slow fish it fast stuff like that like that grim reaper with the pulsing silicone legs that stuff all works pretty well gotcha and i guess the the vampire leech looks a little like a kind of the style like kind of a woolly bugger pattern is the is the um 
the Grim Reaper a little bit different than that? Well, Grim Reaper, if you know what a swim jig is, yeah, that's basically what it looks like, except you can cast it with a fly rod. The Vampire Leech really doesn't look like a woolly bugger. It's just one long, soft body Okay, um, with that tail extending out from it. With the tail. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and I see these. We'll put some links in the show notes. Um, and where would somebody go? I guess you sell through Rainey's. Is, where would you recommend they pick up, or can they grab these from your shop? Yeah, we've got them all at theflyfishers.com. Yeah, perfect. Good. All right. And so let's talk about that. So we've got, let's th- say we're earlier in the season, you're out there fishing. I mean, you got different times of the year, you know, when things warm up, but that earlier time, how would you fish those large mouth with? So you got these flies on, what's that look like? Are you going straight to sinking line? Not, you wouldn't be using a floating line at all? Uh, it depends. If I was fishing some backwaters and stuff oh, right. on a river, because that time of the year, I'm looking for dark bottoms, anything. I mean, one degree of water temperature can make all the difference in the world. And, uh, so I'm looking for darker bottoms and I'm looking for more still water in the rivers like the Wisconsin river. I wouldn't be out in the main channel. I'd be looking in the sloughs and that. So maybe that stuff I could fish with floating lines. And if I had some wing dams with eddies with a little bit more current that I found some fish in, then I might be using a sink tip on it. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. So if you got the sloughs, still water stuff, you could use a floating and probably like, cause these are weighted. These two flies we talked about have a little bit of lead weight as they, they get down pretty quick. Right. They got big lead eyes on them. Yeah. Perfect. Help get them down and give them kind of a jigging action. Okay. So if you find it, say you're in a backwater slough, you know, I, what would be a typical depth you might be fishing there and how would you jig that? How would you get these flies down to the fish? Is it similar? Are you pretty much imitating a, a, a gear type thing? Well, you're just swimming it like a leech. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if we're fishing flies or if you're fishing gears. and bass guys the tournament guys a lot of times and i'm hearing it more and more watching these guys doing it using that term matching the hatch whether it's a crayfish or whether it's a leech or a shad some kind of bait fish so it's a lot of what is the forage base around there and like with the vampire leech i think everything that swims will eat a leech carp pike and i've caught musky on the thing um, so you're just kind of imitating what's going on. You're just doing it slowly. The Grim Reaper, those things imitate anything from bluegills to, to crayfish. And maybe you're just kind of swimming it on the bottom, you know, like a crayfish coming out because the crayfish up here in the winter, they burrow into the bottom and kind of bury themselves in the mud to survive the winter. And once that water starts warming up a little bit, they're coming out looking around. And they're pretty lethargic as well as the fish are. So just a slow crawl on the bottom can be really effective. And then if you're in in a lake situation, here again, now you may be fishing deeper because if the water hasn't warmed up yet, you know, typically once that water is opened up and people are thinking about fishing, you're going to start finding bass in the deeper water. They're coming out of the wintering areas and they're moving up to those first staging points. Deeper water yet, but kind of in the areas where eventually they're going to come up and spawn. Hmm. So they may not be in the real shallow water yet, and they could be moving up there. You know, you get a warm day, and you can find those fish were out in 10 feet of water in the morning. By the afternoon, they're up in two, three feet of water. Oh, okay. And what are, what's that? When are they spawning, and where are they spawning? Um, the thing with bass are they're a big panfish. Hmm. 
So hmm. what they do, they're part of the panfish family. And those are the two species that make beds, uh, smallmouth and largemouth. So you're looking for bedding areas. And that tends to be kind of silty areas, sandy areas where they can brush out with their tail, make a nest. And a lot of times there'll be gravel underneath that sand where the eggs can go down in there and be a little bit safer from predators. So you're looking for those areas. And, and a lot of times what you can do is you just, during the course of summer, just look for beds because the beds will still be there. And if they're there in July, they're going to be there next May. Oh, gotcha. You'll find where the bedding areas are. And the other thing is if you do have electronics, a lot of times what I'll do, and especially if I find bluegill beds, because they'll look like a honeycomb on those things. It's amazing what wow. what bluegill beds look like. Are they spawning in the same area as the bass? They can be. Yeah. Yep. The same, you know, typically the shallower water. If there's not good shallow water, the bass could be spawning out in 10 or 12 feet. But generally they're up in shallow water. But you find these honeycombs, and I always put waypoints there because the bluegills will spawn later, and a lot of times they're still spawning in July, and if they're on those beds, there's bass around there eating them. So it's always a good place to go back and look for. I always mark bluegill beds on my locators, my GPS, so I can go back and find them. Um, but, yeah, eventually as the water warms up, then those fish will be coming up into the the shallows and getting more active as the water temps warm up and their metabolism picks up and they spawn and then it's post-spawn and onto the summer patterns. Okay. And then when is post-spawn typically? Well, it's kind of funny here because I've seen bass spawning with snow in the air on the third week of May <laughs> and there's still fish on beds and I've seen fish spawning at the end of June. And quite typically in Wisconsin, I just kind of give up on it's pre-spawn, it's spawn, it's post-spawn. It could be pre-spawn and post all at the same time. Mm, gotcha. Just depending on the fish, on the weather, and I think it's got something to do with the moon phase. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. So you key more, and so like where they're spawning is important because obviously the, the bass will be coming into where the other sunfish are eating them, but also are you fishing during that time, um, you know, during the spawn, or is that more after or before? I do not like targeting beds. Yeah. Um, I've just, I've got an ethical problem with it. Um, I don't feel right doing it, and I don't, I don't like seeing a lot of that stuff on TV and on the internet. Where, you know, yeah, we get this. Is how you pull them off the beds? Oh, right. So people are actually doing that. They're actually pulling yeah. them off the bed. And okay, and they're releasing them, and they go back to the beds. And that's okay to do. That's not illegal to do. It's not illegal, but to me, it just doesn't seem right. Yep. 
I don't know. It's uh, It just doesn't sit right with me. I'll still fish during that time, but I'll be looking in other areas. Right, right. Yeah, because it is the one time. I mean, do you find largemouth bass are, I mean, they're not in danger of going away anytime soon? No, not at all. Yeah, so it's probably impacts from fishing on the spot. It probably isn't a huge, maybe huge impact. No, but what I'll tell you a problem is, this is on Lake Michigan where we've got goby infestations there. And, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways because the gobies are one of the reasons these smallmouth get so big in Lake Michigan is because it's just this endless trough of food for these smallmouth to just keep eating. The problem with gobies is, and fishing smallmouth on the beds in the Great Lakes is, when the male is on there and he's protecting that nest, you catch the fish, you let it go, it will swim right back to the nest. But in that brief period of time that you're fishing, that, you know, fighting that fish, releasing it, and letting it go back, gobies will come in and clean out that entire nest of eggs before they hatch. Mm. And that's a real problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's an invasive, or that is an invasive fish up there? Absolutely. Yeah, that came in from ocean liners and stuff. Gotcha. Okay. And if somebody, so now we're kind of early September, if somebody was coming in now, same thing, right? They have a boat and they're saying, hey, I want to go for largemouth. How would you tell them today versus say earlier in the spring differently? Um, it's starting to rotate back to that. It's, the fishing has been so good lately. And even we've had this heat wave back into the third and fourth week of August and into the first of September, you know, mid nineties, upper nineties and the fishing for bass around here has just been incredible. Just it's going well in there. I'm catching fish on top at six, seven feet of water using flies and a little bit shallower. It's just getting to be that time of year where they start feeding up. They have to eat now. Oh, They've got the metabolism going and they're getting ready for winter and it's only going to get better. Oh, wow. But it'll change as the water temperatures change. So right now it's prime time because water temperatures are perfect. They're active. So you, what would be the fly you'd be using now? So you're using like more of a dry line and doing the popper stuff? Absolutely. Because that's how we all want to catch them. Yeah. I mean, it's just so cool to see them come up and crush flies on top. Yeah. And what's kind of fun is what's been happening lately is that fishing has been lasting until 10, 11, 12 o'clock in the morning you know, till noon before they kind of settle back down and get into the weeds again. So you can go out all morning and catch a bunch of fish wow. on top. It's been kind of fun. We've had a stretch of crappy weather here lately. It's cold and, and raining and windy. So that's kind of knocked it down. But here by Thursday, it should be back. So I'm going to go out Thursday and see if I can pull some up. Gotcha. So that's going to the poppers. And then as you, then, like you said, eventually the water starts changing in sometime later, September, October. And then once it cools down, these fish drop back more into like we talked about, it'd be more like springtime fishing. Yeah, eventually they will. I mean, you're going to find fish up shallow now for quite a while. And then once those temps start really plummeting, the fish are going to be eating hard. They just have to, to survive the winter up here. And they're going to be scattered from three feet of water to 10, 12 feet of water. So, you know, you're just looking for rock bars and the guys that are successful at that time of the year, keep chasing the green weeds because these weeds will start to die as the water gets cold and they'll start to turn brown. And if you can keep finding green weeds, you'll keep finding bass, whether 
three feet or 13 feet. Gotcha. That's a great tip. So basically, yeah, even later in the season, as long as you can find the green vegetation, you can find some largemouth. Yep. That's awesome. All right. And and we'll talk about the popper a little bit. Do you have flies specifically in your uh, lineup for poppers? And talk about a little bit about that popper, uh, what they need to do that. Well, uh, the poppers, I mean, so basically with topwater stuff, we're looking at two different versions, either the hard body or soft body, which means either soft, real soft foam or deer hair. Um, And divers and divers to me are one of the best all around flies that you can fish for bass whether it's largemouth or smallmouth when larry dalberg came up with that thing 25 or 30 years ago it that and the clouser minnow were two of the most successful warm water flies i think that have come down the line yeah in that amount of time and divers are just so much fun to fish because of the the way they move water and they swim back up after you pop them a few times. And uh, it's really a fun fly to fish. And the other thing about them is what I'll do with them because they push so much water is I'll take those just kind of getting off on a side note, no paste on them, no silicone to keep them up. I'll just squeeze water in them to waterlog them. And then I'll fish them on a sinking line or a sink tip line and a short leader just to fish them like a plug underwater because they'll swim around like a rappler or something. Oh, wow. And they'll push water so the fish can find them with their lateral line and make a little bit of noise and movement underneath. So it's extremely versatile. Those are my favorite ways to fish topwater those with a diver. But then poppers can be really good too. And one of the things with poppers people need to look at, the different types of hard body poppers. There's concave faced ones there's sneaky which is a reverse popper and uh you know they've got a real tapered head on them so they're a lot quieter and sometimes if the fish want to eat on top but they're not real aggressive the sneaky pete type stuff might be the thing that that gets them going and and then going back to the spring one of the fun things to do if you're fishing something like a sneaky pete and they're coming up and looking at it, but they're just not committing to eating it. I like doing the hopper dropper thing where I'll put a, a foot to 18 inches of tippet on there and then put a dragonfly or a damselfly nymph for the dropper. Because by that time of the time of the year, those nymphs are really getting active in the still waters. And the popper will draw that fish up there, but they won't compare it to it but they'll eat that nymph oh wow and so it's like a hopper dropper rig for bass it's a popper it's a popper dropper yep <laughs> this popper is... dropper there you go there you go popper dropper this is perfect right on hey I... let me interrupt you Dave. yeah go ahead it really bothered me and embarrassed me i couldn't remember how they call that that line so i just pulled up the oh computer. good it's the sonar titan sink tip mini okay yeah so, i call them the mini tip but they call it the tip mini yeah the mini tip yeah i saw that okay so sonar titan mini tip yep yeah yeah good good yeah we'll throw that in the show notes so this is perfect so i love the popper dropper is just uh perfect you know and it's great because there's other flies so they're taking popper i mean it sounds like these largemouth bass I mean, they're taking damsels. Those are obviously aquatic insects. So it sounds like they're pretty opportunistic. Is that kind of the way it is? They're eating whatever is there. They eat as much and they're just voracious predators. Yeah. One of the things I kind of find with, you know, damsels and dragons and that, and this is really true with with smallmouth as well, 
Um, I don't fish those a lot by themselves because it tends to be that the nymph patterns, well, you can catch a lot of bass on them, but it tends to catch the smaller fish. So uh, with that popper dropper, as you called it, rig, you got bigger fish coming up to look at that popper and they end up eating that damsel or dragonfly nymph, then it's giving you access to a, an active big fish. Whereas if you only had the, the nymph on, you might just be catching smaller fish. So they are opportunistic, you know, crayfish, bait fish, leeches, all that stuff, and all the sizes of fish eat all of that. One really cool thing I should tell you yeah. that I learned about forage and that stuff is I was up in northern Michigan up in the UP one time. I don't know, we were shooting some videos or something. I come across a bunch of these college kids and they got scopes and diving masks and stuff and wetsuits and they're diving around in the lake. So I kind of made my way over there and I asked them what they were up to and what they did was it was a study group from some university. And they were studying the feeding habits of crayfish by smallmouth. And it was, we've got a thing up here called the rusty crayfish, and it's an invasive species, and they can ruin an entire lake. They'll eat all the vegetation out of the lake. And the only thing that keeps that crayfish in check are bass populations, you know, fish populations. And so what they were studying was what are the feeding habits of bass on these things so they literally got a bunch of different sized rusty crayfish put a little stay lock swivel something like you'd clip a bait to mm. with conventional gear poked a hole in the tail and tethered them to a 12 by 12 inch white piece of ceramic tile on the bottom so they could watch the feeding habits mm. and I talked to them and they showed me their notes. I mean, they'd been working on this for a month and I got it all in like 10 minutes. Hmm. And what they told me was the most opportunistic is for people if they're tying their own flies or even buying them. The most opportunistic size of a crayfish that a bass will eat is about the length of your uh, index finger. They saw rusty crayfish big enough to put their claws out and chase off big bass. Jeez. They were so aggressive. So if they got too big, they wouldn't eat them. And uh, it was really interesting. And they said, and 95% of those crayfish they watch get eat were in the defensive position. So, you know, if you're designing your own flies and stuff, pretty good chance you want to put the claws back by the bend of the hook and make that thing swim backwards. Oh, right. So it, it was really eye-opening, things you wondered about. And I got all that information just for being in the, the right place at the right time. Uh, so how would your fly, what, what would it be a good crayfish pattern? How would you design it or fish it so it looks like it's actually retreating away? Well, I've got one called a crazy craw. And then I've got another one called the long strip craw. And I designed both of those. In that way, I put the lead eyes on the bend of the hook, and uh, I use rabbit strips and on the long strip. And I actually, that was a version of a shrimp I did for my long strip bonefish fly. I just converted it to crayfish for up here, changed up the colors. And then the crazy craw is extremely impressionistic, and I use a few different pine squirrel strips on that. 
to get it to swim and move. But there's some stuff like Wilson's roadkill craws, a good, good way of uh, how he designed his. There's a lot of patterns like that that fish backwards. Gotcha. Yeah, there's a lot of them. That's right. That's right. Perfect. Yeah, I see it now with Pat Ellers. Yeah, the crazy craw. Perfect. Um, nice. Well, uh, yeah, as far as the uh, largemouth, um, I mean, we've kind of taken it through the season. Uh, anything else you would throw out here? I guess one thing is on the rod. Maybe talk about the rod and anything else you would give as far as maybe some little tips to get people ready for their first largemouth trip. Yeah, you know, the rod size, I guess you'd pick that depending on the flies you were going to throw and on the size of fish you tend to encounter. Because there's lakes up here where it's hard to find a legal fish. So it's 14 inches long. Small lakes infested with bass where they're telling you just keep everything you catch to, to get them out of there. But typically my favorite rod is going to be a seven weight or an eight weight. Um, I can throw bigger flies with those. And one of the things I don't like hearing in the shop, and I try to educate people on it, is, oh, it was great. I caught this 18-inch smallmouth on my five weight. It took me 30 minutes to get it. And how do you tell a guy you probably killed it? Yeah. You know, even though he swam away, they build up lactic acid just like weightlifters do. And Sometimes they can't get rid of that. You're just fighting them too long. And I just, you hook one, get it in, land it, and put it back in the water. And that's why I don't like to undergun anything. Um, So sevens and eight weights are are what I like to use. And, uh, you know, there's a variety of stuff out on the market. I'm typically using nine footers. I can get more distance. I can cover more water with it but then there's some really fun stuff in that eight foot range as well and the thing with shorter rods is it's easier to hook set and it's easier to fight fish and you can be more accurate with it so there's some trade-offs there but if you're just buying your first rod for that then you get a nine footer you know you got something you can go bone fishing with red fish you can go fish some steelhead if you're around here get a lot more use out of the nine foot good point Good point, nine foot. And then how would you, on some of these bigger patterns, what's your tip on casting? Are you guys making some pretty long casts or how does that look? Um, it depends on where you're fishing and what the water is. You know, I've always said if you can cast 30 to 40 feet accurately, you're going to catch fish. But if your buddy can do it at 80 feet, he's going to catch more. You can cover more water with longer casts. A lot of times you can do that. Because if we're fishing big weed beds, we're just covering the water but if you're going down a river especially like floating a smallmouth river and you're hitting wood and pockets as you're by you really want to be accurate and that's where shorter casts make more sense so it can be i don't mean to sound vague but it can be anything from 20 feet to 80 or 90 feet if you can pull that off as far as lines go you know bass bug tapers really help get the flies out there mm, right one of the things people know don't may not know about bass bug tapers like scientific anglers that's a two line weight heavy fly line and with a lot of the high performance rods nowadays it softens them up a little bit and it can make a mediocre caster cast a little bit longer but one of the big issues is people need to know that kind of stuff because we get guys come in the shop all the time I need a fly line. What weight rod have you got? I've got an eight weight, but I want a nine weight line. 
well, why do you want that? You know, well, I cast better with it, so I want a nine-weight bass bug taper. All of a sudden, this guy's walking out with an 11-weight, right. eight-weight, wondering why I bought this crappy line. So you really need to dig in, do your homework, and ask in your fly shop. They should know that stuff and be able to help you make the right choice. Yeah. And another line that just came out that I've been messing with and uh, just came out in the market is the new Infinity Warm hmm. um, from Scientific Anglers. And it's kind of the same Infinity Taper, which is like a half a line size heavy, but it's got a warm water core. Because even up here, I mean, we've had weather lately in the mid to upper 90s, 110 degree indexes. And if you're out in a fiberglass deck boat or even the carpet on my bass boat, you can't stand on there in bare feet. You know, we're not in tropical weather here, but it gets really hot in the summer up here on the decks of our boats. And so that line was designed for that to be able to stay nice and stiff and cast well in hot weather. And it's kind of a fun line as long as you're not throwing really bulky bass flies. Um, it's a great line for smallmouth where you're throwing more of the hard poppers because it's just heavy enough to make that little bit longer cast with a popper, but you don't need a whole two line sizes to be more proficient with it. So that's kind of the way I go with the floating lines. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah, this is good. And and so we, we talked a little bit about, you know, I mean, I think you mentioned your fly patterns are kind of designed after some of the gear. What Are there other things that you've learned from these kind of tournament guys, like the conventional fishing that you haven't talked about yet that you want to shed light on that has made the largemouth especially? Absolutely. One of the things, and I've fished some bass tournaments, and I've fished with some incredibly good anglers, even in the regional stuff up here. And one of the things that just gets driven home to me, it doesn't matter what kind of fishing rod you're using, it's the casting, the hitting the targets. I mean, you watch these guys skip baits up underneath docks and that kind of oh, stuff. Right. You know, and they're fishing a bait 10, 15 feet up under a dock without touching anything. And uh, I've got a cast that I make, and I kind of stumbled on this one day just messing around. But, and I don't know how you explain it without showing people, but the long and the short of it is it's basically an underhand cast. And if you're up on the deck of the boat, raising you up above the water level, when you come over the top and make your cast, whether you're off to the side a little bit or overhead, forming that loop over the top, I'm forming a loop underneath by making the cast, this sounds right, underhanded. You know, I, I make my back cast, and instead of driving the tip over the top, I drive it under the bottom. And you'd be surprised how far you can cast up under a dock doing that. And just even if if you drive it hard enough and it touches the water, that fly will skip there just like a wacky worm would. So stuff like that, but be accurate, and that's just practice. We've got one of those new ultra golf places that's five stories high with the big. Oh, bed. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, top golf. Top golf. Yeah, top golf. Yeah. Over here in our, our area. And I went over there. They got some restaurants. My wife and I went there to eat the other day, Saturday night. And that place was just jam packed with people hitting golf balls. But you'd be hard pressed to drive around a million people in Milwaukee and find anybody casting with their fly rod in the backyard people just don't practice they just oh, go fish right that's one of the keys to me in getting better is practice your casting 
practice. Be able to hit that spot, you know, get it up under that dock or under that bush. And it's one of the key things I learned from them. And then the other thing is just concentration. I'm not saying take the fun out of it, but if you want to catch fish, you got to concentrate on catching fish and look for the areas and learn where you're at and learn what the fish are doing. That can be just as much fun as the, the catching them too. Right. Right. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. The casting, we just, I asked that question in our Facebook group, uh, this week on cast, or I just asked like, what is your best beginner tip? And a lot of people said, Hey, get really good at casting, take lessons, get certified, all this stuff. Um, but talk about that again on the casting. So that side, that upper hand thing. So walk us through it again. So you make your back cast like normal and then you're casting down and sweeping it up or how are you getting it under that dock or that type of deal? Yeah. So I'm standing in the deck of my boat. Now, let's say um, I'm, the dock is on my left. And if you're right-handed, that's the best way to fish under docks is to be going around the lake in a clockwise direction and casting out over the bow of the boat. So I'm coming up to the dock. I make my back cast just like I would with an overhand cast. But instead of just pushing straight again and driving my rod tip over the top, I drop the tip of the rod in my hand, my wrist, and drop it underneath where I stop the rod, and then I drive it underneath the loop. So if the path of the the cast is, let's say, at shoulder, I always cast right around shoulder height, my wrist. So I come back shoulder height, make my stop. Now I drop my hand and the rod tip under my shoulder height and drive that rod in my um underneath i see so you literally drop your shoulder and arm straight down and then you cast just yeah just drop it down a little bit and that loop will form underneath the line going forward instead of over the top and you'll throw right up underneath that stuff gotcha that's cool right right so you drop your tip and that drops changes your loop so it goes over the top and then you can get it underneath yep Oh, cool. Yeah, this is now. Could we see that anywhere? Is there anywhere we could see that cast online? Nah, I should probably do a video. Yeah, you got to get a video of that one. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you. <laughs> nice. So, okay. Well, I mean, I think that in the tournament stuff, I love, you know, we've heard this many times over, well, not many times, but it seems like the great fly anglers, you know, I always go back to Kelly Gallup, you know, lots of guys in your neck of the woods um, that are, they always, a lot of them go back to the gear. They say that's where we've learned to take it to the next level. Um, so it seems like that's a vow. I mean, that's definitely, it seems like you can't go wrong there. These gear guys, what else do the gear guy is? Why is it easier for them in a lot of ways? Is it just the casting, the fact that they can be more accurate with their casting and retrieve? Is it that as simple as that? Why these guys are so much better maybe than fly or, or are they not? Or are fly guys catching up? Well, what do you mean as far as casting goes? Yeah. Just as far as like catching fish. Like if you're going out for largemouth bass, it's you against the guy with the gear and you're in a tournament, who's going to catch more largemouth bass? They just spend more time on the water. Yeah. So it's it, that. It, what it comes down to. Yeah. And you know, the, some of the regional stuff here and there's always that, uh, well, tournament fishing is bad and not nah, tournament fishing is okay. And you know, if the tournaments are done ethically, I'm okay with it. Um, it's kind of the way it is. And one of the problems I'm starting to have with is so many of them. And I don't like the increased pressure it's putting on the fisheries. And I'd leave that up to the local DNRs that they got to they gotta do something about regulating that a little bit better. 
But a lot of these guys are just guys that love fishing. And, you know, when you get into the elite series stuff, it's big, big money. We've got a local guy here, Caleb Hoopal, that I fished against him in a few regional tournaments. And Caleb went on to be an elite angler. He won two tournaments. I mean, that was almost a quarter of a million dollars in wins. Wow. You start putting that kind of money out there, it changes how things get done. Right. Yeah, you're going to be fishing more often if, you're, if there's a quarter million on, on the line. Right. But, you know, that that stuff is putting pressure on fisheries. And, and I, a lot of these guys are just doing these club tournaments and stuff just to trade info and get to be better fishermen. And I'm I'm good with that. It's just camaraderie. Instead of sitting in the bar and drinking beers and talking about it, they're out there showing each other what they're doing. And I that's what I really appreciate about it. Yeah. But the big thing is they're talking about it. And I know one of my reps was in the other day and he made the comment about, you know, I, I think the average guy gets about 60 to 100 days on the water. A fly shop customer. And I looked at him and I said, what? And he says, yeah, yeah. You know, that's what I'm thinking. I said, 60 to 100 days. I said, think about that. Yeah. What guy do you know can walk away from his wife and his kids for a third of the year? Right. And fish that much. It's just not happening. No. But I'll tell you what, these guys that are even doing the regional stuff around here, they're fishing two, three, four times a week. It's, they're just on. And I'm not saying, well, if you're not fishing two, three, or four times a week, you're not going to be any good at it. But, you know, you can't go once every four weeks and expect to find success. No, and that's why the guides, you know, all these guides are so important. You know, I mean, you can do it on your own, and that's great for sure. But if you want to up your game and decrease that curve, you know, the learning thing, right, um, those guys are on the water, 160, some of them 250 days, right, or whatever it is, these guides. Yep. So they're we talk about that a lot with our some of our, um, you know, kind of Jeff Liske. I always come back to him because we're doing some stuff out there with Steelhead. And, I mean, he's just on the water. And it's not like he's the greatest fisherman in the world. He won't even say it, right? He's not the great. But he knows what's going on. He talks to everybody. He knows exactly what's going on with the fish. Like you said, this bass thing, somebody can listen now and they learned a little bit, right? But they could probably do a lot better calling you at the shop and saying, hey, okay, what's going on right now? Is there a guide maybe I can go out with? Is that What would be your recommendation? Somebody that wants to really, really get a largemouth bass, you know, what is the one take-home message today? Um, just go fish. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it, that sounds kind of uh, simplistic, but yeah, I had a guy one time. I used to guide, and I don't do it anymore. I don't have time for it. And I had this guy out in the water, and, and we were literally up doing the carp thing up in door county wisconsin and we were up there for three four days and he was really a nice guy and and he just was a, always asking questions and then he was telling me about i'm going to this school and i'm going to that school and i'm doing this and i'm doing that and he couldn't catch fish mm. finally i looked at him and i said you know i said i would just save that money and i would go fishing I said, it's great that you're doing these schools. I said, save that for January and February. I said, but in the summer, don't waste your time doing that stuff. Not that he's wasting time, but you know what I mean? I said, you're going to learn more tripping and falling on your face, fishing and doing it wrong and figuring out how to do it right by just going and just get out there and go get a good balanced outfit. Talk to somebody in a shop that can help you put that together get a handful of flies that work in the area 
find a buddy or a guide or something that'll take you out and just go go fishing. I remember when I was a little kid and I tried doing the fly fishing stuff and I just couldn't figure it out. And I always had a few worms with me and I'm up on these little trout streams up in northern Wisconsin in the UP and I would just, after an hour of frustration, I'd start catching trout again and the, the worms. One day I said, if I don't leave these worms at home, I'm never going to get this. And I remember turning a rock over and there was this bright green caddis and I have one in the box and five, 10 minutes later, I caught a trout on it. And once I caught that first trout and saw how it all worked, I just went, well, this is how it's supposed to go. <laughs> I probably lost so many fish I didn't even know that I had on before. Well, kind of the same thing with this, you know, just go fishing. Yeah, go fishing. Love it. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there, Pat. And uh, and we'll send everybody out to theflyfishers.com if they have questions for you. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on today and shedding light on largemouth and everything you have going. It's been pretty awesome to hear, you know, you've been going so long and uh, sounds like you're going to keep going. So I appreciate all your time today and look forward to keeping in touch. Sounds good. Thanks a million, Dave. I appreciate you having me. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.